0: Uh, let's just let's open up with a word of prayer, uh, Father. Uh, thank you, thank you for uh, the gift of your Son. Father, thank you for what this day means to each and every one of us. Lord, that we celebrate uh, a risen Savior. Lord, be with us as we go into this time of of teaching and study, and uh, on into uh, worship. Lord, uh, be with us. Uh, let uh, the words spoken and in, in the songs sung uh, glorify You and <clears throat> glorify Your Son. And these things we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so Esther, chapter two. Uh, we have the uh, the kind of cool title uh, that was given. Is uh, we're covering Beauty and the Beast. So what we've studied so far, we've seen somewhat of a beast of a man in Ahasuerus or Xerxes, see a very petulant, spoiled king, one that cannot make decisions for himself. Um, And here we are in Chapter 2, and enough time has uh, passed after the banishment of Queen Vashti that uh, the king, under the advice of his wise men, decides that he will select a new queen. The strategy for this is uh, something we might find on today's reality television. Uh, There will be a competition, and it is a weird, wild competition. All the young, single, beautiful women throughout the kingdom are invited to participate. While this does seem crass and shallow, God nevertheless clearly works through this beauty pageant, to bring an unlikely queen to the throne of Persia. So, uh, let's go to the text. We'll read uh, verses one through eleven now. It says, "After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, and what he had done, or what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him." Said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful women uh, or beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. And he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, who was named Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai uh, took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his and the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her, So, the events leading up to Esther's rag-to-riches story uh, is not long after Vashti's deposition. Ahasuerus's anger has subsided, and now he begins to reflect on what's taken place. He remembers Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her, right there in verse 1. The word translated remember here means much more than simply recalling to mind the pertinent information about the situation. It has more a robust sense to it, having a connotation of recalling something with affection, almost like a nostalgia. In other words, Ahasuerus is not simply uh, reviewing dispassionately the events that have transpired. He remembers Vashti warmly and is stricken with regret over the way he treated her. Perhaps he is sorry for the way he summoned her, or maybe that he acted rashly Perhaps he just realizes what he lost, and now that she is gone, he misses her. Whatever the reason for his regret, however, there is nothing he can do about it now. He acted impetuously, and now she is irretrievably gone. Presumably uh, out of concern for the king's unhappiness, he has these gaggle of guys around him that we've seen, young court attendants, and they make a plan. And once again we see where the king is incapable of devising his own plans and his servants must supply it for him. The proposal is that the search be made over the entire empire and that all the beautiful young virgins be sent by the commissioners and the provinces to the royal palace where they can be placed in the king's harem. There one of the king's top eunuchs will take charge of them, putting them through a very strict regimen of beauty treatment. Whichever girl proves most pleasing to the king will become the new queen in Basti's place. The plan pleases the king, which is not surprising. Most carnal men, hey, want to have a train of women pulled in front of me? What would not make him happy? And it feeds his own self-indulgence. Characteristically as well, the king seems to have a penchant for plans that are superficial and short-sighted. Hasuerus is completely unconcerned about a girl's political or familial significance. Again, noting that most queens are chosen given some sort of advantage to the king that's on the throne. But no, not a Hasuerus. There's no uh, criteria pertaining to the girl's character, intelligence, or inner beauty. As far as the king is concerned, there are only three criteria that matter. Youth virginity, and physical beauty. So any girl meeting those three criteria will be gathered into the royal harem, for which he can then choose his next queen. Of course, one of the uh, girls selected is Esther, living in Susa. Mother and father are deceased, and she is being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who treats her as if she were his own daughter. Adding to her misfortune is the people's plight, The narrator highlights Mordecai's genealogy and specifically notes the role of the exile in their history. In fact, the verb carried away, literally exiled, is used three times in the same verse as as if to emphasize just how traumatic uh, the exile was. And that's just there in verse 6. But in my study this week, uh, going over different commentaries, uh, we see that tie back to... Daniel that we've been discussing I think it's worth bringing up yes their plight was a, a dire one but it was disobedience that kept Mordecai and Esther's family in exile in 583 BC Cyrus issued a decree permitting the Jews to return home some went back with Zerubbabel at the time and Ezra uh, 1 and 2 but many stayed comfortably settling where they were outside the land of promise compared to uh, Jerusalem that was rubble. Do we choose the convenience we're in or go to build something that would glorify God and separate themselves yet again from the pagan nations of the world? See, I had uh, Esther and Mordecai or their parents returned to Jerusalem at some point in the previous 50 years, would Esther still have been taken by the harem's recruiters? Maybe, but she certainly wouldn't have been such an easy target. The result of the family's history of disobedient compromise was that Mordecai and especially Esther found themselves in a position that for all its worldly advantages was potentially disastrous spiritually. Esther ended up married to an uncircumcised pagan, virtually cut off from the community of faith, successfully pretending not to be a child of the true and living God? Was it possible to completely privatize one's faith in an exile? To be a faithful believer in private, but never let it show in any outward way during the five years she lived in the king's harem? Surely not. Her enviable progress in one world The world of the empire of Ahasuerus came at a cost, completely suppressing her identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, Esther is part of a beleaguered people, no doubt, desperately needing to catch a break. And a break they're about to catch. We'll see that as we study further in terms of physical appearance. Esther is extremely attractive. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at there in verse 7. To be exact, uh, not surprisingly, she was selected and taken into the king's palace. Now, it's reasonable to suppose that girls across the empire would have reacted differently to being called into the king's harem. Um, It's not hard to imagine that some of the girls uh, would have gone against their will having much preferred stay with their family, uh, losing the opportunity to marry, have a family, and live among the people they love. However, many of the girls would have been energized with excitement over the privileges of being selected for the king's harem. To us in this modern Western society, that may sound strange. But life back then was very, very hard. They lived a very hard existence. In uh, contrast, life in the king's harem meant living in the lap of luxury. It was a life of ease and of privilege. As a result, some young girls would have viewed such a prospect as as essentially winning the lottery. A free pass to the good life. How Esther felt about being selected for the king's harem doesn't really say, does it? Some have argued that since other girls were gathered while Esther was taken, She must have gone against her will. However, the same verse is used in verse 15 to describe Mordecai's adoption of Esther, which can hardly be intended to mean that Mordecai took care of Esther against her will. A more compelling suggestion is that she may have been internally conflicted about her selection. And the author identifies her both by her Jewish name, Hadassah, and her pagan name, Esther. Interestingly, she is the only character in the book who is identified by two different names. The implication is that Esther is caught between two worlds. Part of her identity is rooted in her Jewish heritage. Part of her identity is tied up in the Persian culture. As the events of the book unfold, the tension between her two identities will force her to decide between them on several occasions, the first one being almost immediately after she arrives at the royal palace. On the one hand, being true to her Jewish roots would certainly mean avoiding at all costs becoming a pagan king's concubine. On the other hand, living in the cultural climate of the Persians would mean seeing the luxury of the Persian court as something desirable. Esther, it seems, is really caught in between these two worlds. This is no different than for any people of the faith. We find ourselves living in the same tension today, struggling with whether to be faithful to our core identity among the people of God or whether to capitulate to the pressures of cultural expectations and opportunities. Teenagers, young adults regularly find themselves in situations that will force them to ask these questions, who am I? Am I a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus, or am I just part of the crowd? Will I adopt biblical standards on sexuality, or will I adopt the message of the culture around me? Will I be ethical in my schoolwork, or will I do what everyone else is doing in order to keep pace? Will I live boldly for God no matter what it costs me, or will I hide my faith in embarrassment? Those in business also find themselves in similar challenges am I a Christian who serves in the workplace or am I a businessman who happens to have some religious commitments? Will I adopt the values of corporate America in which people are treated like commodities and the only thing that matters is the bottom line? Or will I adopt the values of Jesus and see inherent value in each person? Whether it is my boss, my subordinate, my colleague, or my customer. Will I operate with such maxims as it's not personal business and all is fair in love and war or will I operate out of my Christian identity seeking to love others as I love myself and to treat them the way I would want to be treated even when it means being a disadvantage for me in the competitive marketplace or resulting in a low profit margin. In fact every Christian like Esther finds himself or herself in situations where one must choose between doing what is right and doing what is culturally acceptable. Between acting with integrity or compromising in order to seize an opportunity. Between living consistently out of one's identity in Christ or living for whatever whatever is desirable according to the surrounding cultural climate. These are tough questions We're, we're faced with every day, every waking day of our life do we take the time to think on those things? Is my identity tied up in my position at work? Are the friends that I seemingly surround myself with? Do I compromise on doing what is right in order to not seem, seem closed-minded or uh, narrow-minded as the culture would call a Christian? These are the difficulties that Esther is faced with, and we'll see uh, as we go forward that compromise wins at the end of the day, so continuing on in a passage in nine through thirteen uh, and the young uh, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics, her portion of food. And with seven uh, chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Now this shows that Esther was quite shrewd, possibly charming. This is not he saw her and just, oh, pulled her to the side. He won or gained. She won or gained favor with this eunuch to put her in the best position in the, in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. We see here, both of them are, are, are in on it, right? They're both compromising. They're both trying to find a better place of position where they're at in Susa. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. And when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from uh, from the harem to the king's palace. So, we see Esther uh, is not only beautiful, but socially shrewd and charming. Her efforts pay off. The eunuch uh, is in charge of preparing each girl in the harem for her one-night audition with the king. In yet another display of royal ostentation in the book, each girl is provided with 12 months of beauty treatment. consisting of six months of oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And actually, the text says they spent their time in the oil and in the cosmetics, suggesting that these are some sort of fumigation bath treatments that presumably change skin tones, remove spots, or blemishes over time. And additionally, each girl is given special food for her diet. For Esther, because she won the eunuch's favor, he assigns seven of the top maids in the court to her, and she quickly moves to the best place in the harem. And through all this, Esther is scrupulous to conceal her Jewish identity, presumably by adopting Persian dress, practices, and customs. It isn't entirely clear why she needs to do so, because really, as you read, there's no anti-Jewish feelings uh, within the, the empire. By noting this, The narrator seems to be indicating which identity she is adopting and is not her Jewish one. She clearly does not want to squander this opportunity and she apparently has no problem hiding her roots to do it. Meanwhile, Mordecai is pacing outside in front of the court each day in order to remain abreast of Esther's fortunes inside the harem. And after 12 months of beautification, when it's a girl's turn to spend the night with the king, she is given whatever she wants she may request anything, clothes, jewelry, perfumes, having her hair did, you know. Anything. And in the evening she goes into the king's bedroom and makes her case. Now I'm gonna air quote makes her case. Because this this chapter has, has been difficult for me. It's not a pretty chapter in the Bible. And we have to get past the tendencies of of trying to to whitewash characters in in the in the bible people are messed up in here it's a long story a long story of messed up people in a gracious god so it's a After the 12 months of beautification, they go in to make their case, and in the morning she comes out and is taken to another harem, the one of the king's concubines, where she lives out a largely plush but pointless existence unless she is fetched once again. Night after night, these bedroom auditions are to continue until the king finds the one he wants to be the new queen. So now we get to Esther. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubine. She would go into the king again. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hagai, the king's eunuch, who, was, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. My guess is the dude had a really good night. So eventually it's Esther's turn and according to the date given in verse 16 it's been four years since Vashti's been removed can you imagine four years and on the assumption that Ahasuerus did not tarry too long after Vashti was removed to begin his search more than 1,000 girls may have passed through Ahasuerus' bedroom before it was Esther's turn to audition we see dirt, grime, messed up. So, before she enters, she receives some advice from Hegai, the head eunuch who apparently knows the king's preferences. See, she's won her favor and now she's getting all the tips to secure her position. Acting upon his suggestion, she takes only what he advises her, unlike the previous queen who was unwilling to become the king's sexual object Esther seems only too willing then the bedroom door closes in the morning Esther emerges once again the king is extremely pleased with her much more than the thousand other girls before her in fact the text seems to pile up superlatives describing how delighted the king is with Esther he loves her more than all the women She wins grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. She is so pleasing that he sets the royal crown on her head. No need to audition anyone else. pageant over. And he gives a great feast for all the officials and servants. In fact, he's so happy that he grants a remission of taxes to the provinces and gives gifts with royal generosity. Man. Clearly, the king is more than just a little pleased with Esther. Subsequent readers, however, have not been nearly so approving. In the post-exilic period, maintaining Jewish identity was absolutely critical, and that was achieved primarily through identity markers. Of course, keeping the Sabbath, circumcision, food laws, as well as injunctions against intermarriage. Look at Nehemiah. 13, just for an example. We're not going to go there because we got a lot to cover. But Nehemiah himself, when he was uh, calling the people back to the law of God, cursed them, beat them, pulled their hair out. Why are you doing this? Were people set apart? And we see something completely different in what we, we find here in Esther chapter 2. Esther seems to ignore it all given that she has been trying to conceal her Jewish identity is a safe assumption that she's been eating non-kosher food, in the Persian court, probably does not observe the Sabbath, and is more than a little willing to have sex with a pagan, uncircumcised king. Hardly the appropriate behavior for a Jewish heroine. Numerous arguments have been uh, advanced to alleviate discomfort, all of which try to avoid the association of a moral Immoral behavior on the, with the heroine of the story. One thing has been uh, argued that Esther never really did uh, anything immoral after all. Additions to the story of Esther try to emphasize her piety. They can be seen in both the Greek version of Esther and in various midrashic treatments of it in the Septuagint. Uh, for example, Esther announces her hatred for the bed of the uncircumcised and maintains that she has not eaten non-kosher food or drunk the king's wine. And in one account, Esther tries to hide for four years before she finally discovers, she's finally discovered and forcibly taken to the king. And in the Babylonian treatment, treatment of Esther, it is argued that Esther was not adopted by Mordecai but instead was married to her meaning that she did not actually commit fornication with the The charge of adul- adultery is then removed by pointing out that she was under duress, making her knight with the king akin to rape. In fact, uh, one e- medieval rabbinic treatment even argues that God actually hid Esther from the king and sent a spirit in her place so that she never actually had sexual relations with him. And another tactic has been to concede that Esther did in fact have sex with the pagan king, but to diminish the offensiveness of the act somehow. For instance, some have tried to exonerate Esther by arguing with the passive voice, uh, that the passive voice is used for all the verbs, suggesting that Esther was being swept along by circumstances beyond her control. Similarly, some have argued that the Persian court was so powerful that it is unreasonable to expect a young Jewish girl to have been able to stand up to it. However, uh, I cannot pronounce this guy's name. Ian Duguid has written that Okay, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. We see that in Daniel when he refuses the delicacies of the court. We see that uh, he was willing to be thrown into the lion's den rather than to cease praying. We see where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bend the knee, and were thrown into the blazing furnace rather than give in to the idolatrous commands of a pagan king. And much earlier, we can look to the story of Joseph and the sexual advantages, advances of someone in power and spent years in the dungeon rather than defile himself. And in the post-exilic period, Ezra went to great lengths to show the people how wrong Uh, intermarriage was and how it was to be avoided at any and all cost. We remember remembering that this is the old covenant and the old covenant was for Israel. It was for people set apart. We we've been studying this in judges where the intermarrying, the bringing in a false worship, worshiping false gods. This is uh, in a long chronicle of messed up people doing messed up things and yet, we will see as we study further the providential hand of God there in the story to rescue Hebrews and Susa. So, uh, finally, a third approach has been argued that the urgency of the situation necessitated her actions. For instance, um, Never mind. I went through that already. Sorry. The truth is that at the end of the day, it is very difficult to avoid the most obvious reading of the text. It says what it says. As uh, Alistair Begg will say, the main things are the plain things. We we see compromise. We see some someone or two people in uh, effect, Mordecai and Esther compromising values deeply held values of the Hebrew people in order to gain position in the king's court. So, I would hardly want to uh, coin the slogan, dare to be an Esther, at this point in the story. Now, the trouble is not so much with the Bible as with our expectations of it. Scripture is not a chronicle of great moral examples. We see this. Not ethical, unethical heroes, uh, spiritual giants. Instead, it is an unfolding story of humanity's brokenness. One sinner at a time, and God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. Abraham lied and doubted. David committed adultery and murder. Moses became impatient. God still worked through. Throughout Scripture, God's people uh, morally compromise, ethically fail, and persistently sin. Yet amazingly, uh, God providentially and graciously continues to use them for his redemptive purposes. The same thing is true for Esther. She is culpable for her failures. Her compromises cannot be excused, downplayed, or explained away. Yet in the larger context of the book, this young girl's moral compromises are used by God to deliver his people from potential extermination, plot of Haman. So, we see moral compromise and God's sovereign grace. And we'll see it again much later in the New Testament. God would do the very same thing and, and in what would prove to be the worst of moral compromises in imaginable. John 18 1-27. Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Jesus was arrested by a band of soldiers and officers, sent to the chief priests and the Pharisees and Jesus was uh, bound and brought to Annas and then to Caiaphas. And while Jesus was inside, Peter who had followed behind him in a distance, stood outside in the courtyard inside False witnesses were paraded in front of the high priests, one after the other to offer false testimony. Against Jesus, and this was nothing more than the first kangaroo court that we see in the Bible, but uh, those were not the worst lies that were told, nor where the worst betrayals were. For outside, Peter began to be questioned too. Remember the little servant girl? You also are not one of his disciples. This man's disciples, are you? Peter denies it. I am not. And a second time, while he's warming himself by the fire. No, I am not. And then a third time. I am not. And then the rooster crows. Just as Jesus had predicted, And Peter, suddenly aware of what he had done, broken down and wept. One can only imagine the guilt and the sorrow and the regret that Peter felt in that moment, knowing that he had just denied Jesus, the Son of God. At a critical moment, it must must have been almost too much to bear. We know for Judas, it was too much to bear. Jesus was being tried on trumped up charges and would be brutally beaten and crucified and Peter through his unexcusable or inexcusable moral compromise denied him and left him twisting in the wind. Nevertheless Jesus would not leave Peter. In fact even as Peter was denying him as he went to the cross Jesus' concern was to redeem Peter everyone like His mission was to die and rise again for the uh, redemption of moral compromisers just like Peter, just like us. And so after uh, rising from the dead and appearing to the disciples on the shores of Galilee, we see one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture for me in my study was the restoration of Peter in three times. Do you love me? No, I do. Feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus gave him a significant uh, pastoral role for the people of God. And despite Peter's terrible compromise, God redeemed him and transformed his craven denials into pastoral commissions. Through it all, Peter came to understand that even as he was betraying Jesus, Jesus was redeeming him and using him for a greater purpose. And that's good news, isn't it? How many times, like Esther, we have been willing to compromise because we were unwilling to suffer the consequences of doing what was right? How many times? How many times have we rationalized it by telling ourselves that we really didn't have a choice? How many times have we chosen to conform to the cultural standard rather than to live out our core identity as someone uh, whom Christ has redeemed and made new? Some like Esther have compromised in the area of sexual immorality, have engaged in premarital or extramarital sex. Some like Esther have married, uh, have married, or considered marrying someone that does not share the faith. Some like Esther have preferred to chase opportunity no matter what the cost, sacrificing family, integrity, or friendships to get hit. Still others, like Esther, have tried to hide who they really are, concealing their identity as someone who belongs to God, unwilling to live unashamedly as a Christian, or even denying it in order to fit in. Oh, the mask we wear. Yet the glorious news of the gospel is that God is able to gather up our moral failures and still use them as something redemptive and to a glorious end. The cross itself says so. It tells us that there is nothing that is unredeemable. God is able to take our failures and incorporate them into his larger redemptive purposes. We see that not only for the Christian, we see his... The, the, that larger purpose that Paul fleshes out in Romans chapter nine when he wrote, he said he rose up Pharaoh for that for such a time as that, and that we're not to, we, we we're not to question, we're to trust, we're to obey, so God is able to take our failures and incorporate them into his larger redemptive purposes. That doesn't make what we've done right. As Paul suggested, do we continue to sin that grace abounded more? Heaven forbid that. No. But it also doesn't mean that our failures are unredeemable. As Pastor David pointed out, God can write straight with a crooked stick. The remarkable... Even scandalous truth is that God's providence is strong enough and his grace is big enough to take crooked, the crooked lines of our moral compromises and to write straight his larger redemptive story. Thus, there is hope for us, just as there was for Esther. There is hope for one who has been sexually immoral, for the single man or woman who has allowed a relationship to progress too far physically. There can sometimes be overwhelming guilt and regret. Some may wonder if innocence they have will be lost forever and mar them and haunt them. They may wonder whether they have spoiled their current relationship beyond repair. They may wonder whether a future husband or wife will be able to overlook their past or forgive what they've done. Or they may wonder whether God Still use them. Sorry. This can be especially burdensome, uh, especially burdensome worry if a single night when foolish indiscretion has left them with permanent consequences. There's a reason why God made things the way they are and stipulated the way our sexual lives are to be lived out, and that is in marriage one man one woman everything else will leave you a wreck and we permanently scar ourselves, our hearts and our minds every time we let emotion and indiscretion get the better of us we don't realize what we're doing. Yet God's sovereign grace is bigger than one night, no matter how foolish. God's grace is bigger than any compromise we've made. Even the biggest mistakes can be redeemed for His purpose. We're see, we, we'll we see that as we continue to study this book. uh Perhaps unwanted pregnancy becomes a gift that transforms a young woman's life. Perhaps that child will be used for great things in God's plan. I was reading this, and and, and I immediately thought, Randy Travis, "Three, Three Wooden Crosses. Man, that song gets me every time. I just, I weep. It's beautiful. Perhaps even a disease can be used by God to refocus a person's attention on the things that really matter. And to help guard him from further self-destructive behaviors that would otherwise be all too easy for him to fall into. Perhaps God will use guilt and regret to open up a young woman to a deeper effect, appreciation of his grace in Christ that would have otherwise been impossible for her to grasp. Likewise, the prostitute in Luke's Gospel who shamelessly comes into a Pharisee's house and begins to weep at Jesus' feet, puts ointment on them and dries it with her hair. God will use a young, uh, perhaps God will use a young woman's sexual immorality to teach her to love much because she's been forgiven much. Only God knows for sure. However, Esther shows us she had been, uh, however, Esther shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's sovereign grace can even use sexual immorality, whether premarital or extramarital, in a redemptive way to accomplish his sovereign purpose. And likewise, there is also hope for the Christian who is married to the non-Christian. You know, we have—we uh, we should not be marrying outside of the faith. It's, marriage is hard enough, as it is, both having shared values and shared faith. Now, couple that with you coming from two different directions, you head on a collision course quite often. You know this is uh, what Peter points out in First Peter uh, three one and two. Um, he points out that we should keep in uh, keep within the faith when we marry. He says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if you do not obey the they do not obey the word they may be won by a word uh without a word by your conduct and when they see your respectful or by word sorry likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct it's far too often we can be in that those type of situations in and myself, regret being trapped, hopelessness, and yet God's sovereign grace is bigger than a, a, a marriage wrongly entered. Perhaps God will use the marriage to lead the unbelieving spouse to faith in Christ. However, even if the unbelieving spouse never comes to faith, God may still use the relationship to refine the faith and perseverance of the believing spouse. As we see, Paul suggests this in 1 Corinthians. 7:13 and 14 If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her she should not divorce him for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband otherwise your children will be unclean but as it is they are holy So of course ideal course is for Christians to marry Christians however even when Christians compromise and marry non-Christians as was the case with Esther, God's sovereign grace can still redeem the relationship for his sovereign purposes. Finally, there is hope as well for the one who has pursued a career for all the wrong reasons. People of faith should ideally pursue work that has a sense of calling for them. God has endowed each person with a unique set of gifts, and he gives each of us a responsibility to enter our work as a service to him with those gifts as we learned in our study in Colossians uh, chapter 3 verse 23 however it is all too common for someone to choose a line of work for entirely different reasons expediency, ambition prestige because I'm going to make the big bucks and some most of the time those decisions can lead to regret, frustration unhappiness and many fail to wake up to that reality until they have proverbial midlife crisis. Suddenly they realize that they may have been pursuing all the wrong thing for decades. However, God is able to redeem even the most misguided steps. Our motives may have been full of crooked lines, but God can still write straight with them. Though we have chosen a career for unwise reasons, perhaps God desires to use us where we are. Perhaps we have a role to play in the industry or in culture, in the culture of the company. Perhaps God will use us in the lives of those in the cubicles around us and will make something of our misguided decision that landed us there in the first place. Perhaps we ended up in a position solely because of opportunistic scheming like Esther. And yet God may end up using our sin for his larger purpose. Who knows? That is the wonder of God's sovereign grace. He can redeem the seemingly unredeemable, and he can write straight with crooked lines, right? I'm often reminded, uh, that a years ago, I uh, read a poem by Corey Timboe about the tapestry weaver. And we see all this when we study uh, these passages, these chapters like this where it's dark and we don't see God. We see all this twisting and, and, and compromise and, and uh, darkness and, and sin. We also see God's providential hand on things. and I'm going to share this the poem with you. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful In the weaver's skillful hand, as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing his truth can dim. He is the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Such is the powerful and sovereign grace of God. Whatever compromises you have made, whatever failures, you have had, the truth of the matter is that God is subtly at work, even in the midst of them. His providence is stronger than your compromises. His grace is greater than your failures. He is a God who takes the very blemishes and blotches of our lives and uses them, redeems them, and transforms them by His grace into something beautiful. Our confession has an entire chapter on divine providence and it's a wonderful chapter it helps ease the pain when you're studying scriptures passages like this to see that nothing is out of his sight we do not hide from him he is omniscient he's omnipresent and he has a plan and that plan has always been there he's had a decree always been there from before the world began Plan to save his people, and at just the right time in history, send his son to intersect and to provide that payment for our compromises, our sins, our darkness. So, with that, uh, it's just for further reflection. What, uh, where have you been tempted to compromise your morals in order to get ahead? deep and uh, introspective questions. In what situations are you tempted to privatize your faith or conceal your identity as a Christian? What moral failures are you tempted to think God cannot redeem and cannot use for His larger purposes? I can tell you from my own life that I would beat myself up and the devil would use that. What I I'd, had what I'd done in my past, the devil would use that and, and bring it in front of my mind every time that I would try to take a step forward. But such is the story, uh, uh, the history of scriptures. It, it proves him a liar. How can the grace of God and the cross of Christ empower you to live faithfully in the world, no matter the cost? See, we, I'm glad that the love of God is, is greater than every failure of my life and when we have an anemic study, an anemic prayer life, we leave ourselves open to compromise when we compromise in the small things when we compromise at home that carries over to the workplace that carries over to relationships carries over into our interactions with one another I I hope that um, today we see uh, a little bit clearer portrait of his grace and um A better or a somewhat better understanding of his divine providence. That uh, we have history, and that history, uh, God's redemptive hand, his His providential hand, is the same as it was back then for Esther as it is for us today. And with that, I'll, uh, would you close us with prayer, David?